going to go ahead and get started if you want to find a seat. Good to see you all. It's good to see um, unmasked faces. That means vaccination, so nice job. Um, we, are, we left off last week with the ascension of Christ and this question of absence. Like, what would happen to Jesus' followers in his absence? What would happen to their, their movement? And we're told, as we heard, they, they sort of waited around Jerusalem like he told them to until the day of Pentecost, which is this Jewish holiday that's 50 days. Pent means five. It's 50 days after the Passover. And then Acts 2, what we read earlier, uh, tells us that they were together in this upper room, and this rushing wind filled the room, and the Holy Spirit sort of lit their heads on fire. Um, filling them with the presence of God. And they began to proclaim Christ as Messiah, like powerfully. And it kind of miraculously, it implies people of all different languages could understand them. Now, some of those in Jerusalem that weren't so into the spirit of it all, I guess, they started making fun of them, telling them they were drunk, right? Which is always my favorite one, favorite part of that. Peter gets up and just goes to town, like, he really calls them out and speaks powerfully about the events that have been happening recently, but in light of all of Israel's history and what's been, been going on, even pulling the prophets into this. And he says, and Jesus was a prophet, like mighty in word and deed, this Jesus who you guys crucified, he says. It's this really powerful moment. And then, and then um, he says, but God, after you killed him, raised him from the dead. And then the scripture says they were cut to the heart. They, they knew they had done wrong. And they said, what do we do? What, like, what, brothers, what should we do now in light of what you've told us? And this is his answer. So this is just um, the next part of the text from what we read earlier. Peter said to them, repent, right? Turn around and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Way back when Redemption was a kind of a brand new church, we were meeting over at Olathe Northwest High School, and this homeless man named Ed Corbin started coming to hang out with us. Remember Ed? Um, Jim and Jennifer met him on the street and then suckered him into coming to church with them. But for about the first year and a half, Ed wouldn't even come inside. I think it was about that long. It was a long time. He would not come in, inside because he, I mean, he was a, just in the throes of alcoholism. And he had hurt a lot of people. And when he came here, that was top of mind. 
for him. And, so, and he just he didn't feel worthy even to come inside the church. So we just hung around outside smoking cigarettes and being the welcome committee. Um, but then finally he started coming inside, hung around the atrium first, but then he started coming in and worshiping with us. And once he came in, he would sit right over there. He never missed. He was here every week and became a vital member of our congregation. Ed was, um, he had not been kind to his body. He wasn't very steady on his feet and um, needed really a, a walker, but he was in the woods living in a tent. And so I think Jim is the one who rigged up a, a wheelchair that was empty that he could use as a walker, and that way it could go over uneven ground. But, and that's what he used, but it was kind of funny to, to see. It looked like he was pushing a chair around with nobody in it. Like, he looked like a crazy person. And he would show up to church early and walk around the parking lot with this thing to get some exercise. And I started just, like, poking fun at him about it, and it became this joke between us. Like, I remember one time I pulled up beside him, and he goes, and I said, um, Ed, why don't you just sit down in that thing? And he goes, I mean, he's moving about this fast. He goes, I can't. I'm in too big of a hurry. Right? He's just like, barely, he's just barely moving. And that was, that's what his sense of humor was like. Another time I remember I pulled up beside him like, who are you pushing around in the chair there, Ed? And he just instantly, he was really quick. He's like, where'd he go? He's, he's, just, he's just sharp like that. Well, on Palm Sunday in 2014, Ed was standing on the front steps leaning against the wall right there, smoking a cigarette and talking to one of our high school students, a kid who was, had volunteered with the homeless ministry. He was here early and hung out with those guys all the time. He knew Ed pretty well. He had actually been to his camp before um, multiple times. And Ed just collapsed and wasn't breathing, no pulse. They called 911, started doing CPR. Paramedics showed up. They're trying to revive him. Um, but it became pretty clear there was nothing they could do. And, I mean, he basically died right there, on, right out there on the top step of our church, Palm Sunday, 2014. And we kind of watched it happen, all of us coming to church that day. And nobody really came in. We all just stood out there in the parking lot and watched it happen. It was, it was just the worst. I mean, he had been part of us for a long time, and we were just wrecked. The ambulance took off. They were still working on it, but most of us knew that was that was it. And so then we head back inside. Literally, it's 5 after 10 at this point, thinking, how on, how on earth do we do this? Like, what do we do now? And what happened next, in, in my memory, is the closest thing to a Pentecost moment I think I've ever seen, where each one of us ended up experiencing the gospel sort of in our own language, that morning in a way that we needed in particular. And it was the whole church that made it happen. Everybody kind of doing something different. So Jim and Jennifer and Mandy and a bunch of the volunteers that they had organized at that time just surrounded Ed's community and just were there, just with them, present with them. They were really shook. Um, our, our youth group came around the kid, the high school kid who was standing with him. Our youth pastor like glued to his hip. Um, our worship leaders led us into worship just really tenderly. They didn't change their songs. They just changed the way they did it. Just really, um, there was just this hospitality and kindness to the way they led. Um, everyone who was weeping found a shoulder to cry on. Everyone who needed to process had somebody to talk to. It just, it happened here. By the way, that is a day that I, I came to really... Um, 
understand in a deeper way the, the reason we do liturgy. Because we walked in here and I had no words. I could barely speak. We're like, what do we say at a time like this? There's nothing to say. So we just said what we always say, the liturgy. And as we worked those words together, that's what liturgy means, by the way, work of the people. As we worked them, they, they worked us. And we were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was like, it set our heads on fire. Not with like some showy, charismatic triumphalism, you know. But, but we knew, everybody there that day knew God was with us in this really heavy moment. And here's the thing. Ed Corbin was not some angel, right? Anybody who knew him knew this. His addiction was serious, and he had hurt a lot of people, not to mention himself. He had made a mess of a whole lot of things. And, and so all on his own, Ed's life was never going to image God. But when he became part of this church, his life actually did image God. He was such a blessing to this community, even in his weakness. Maybe because of his weakness, he helped us all become just a little more human as human is meant to be. And I think that there is a sense in which, in which this is meant to be the reality of the church. We see, when we hear Pentecost, we think of like, you know, I don't know, flannel grams, and you probably, most of you are too young for this, but like we think of this idyllic or holy scene. It was gritty. They were hiding. They just killed their, their leader, their rabbi. I mean, this, it was gritty. It was earthy on that first Pentecost. And um, the Spirit entered into that, into the mess of it all. And I think this is, um, there's a sense in which this is the reality of the church that we were born into on that first Pentecost. Together, um, this this is a reality for all of us. Together, there's a holiness. There's a spirit filledness. On our own, it's a little dicey, right? On our own, I don't know. I mean, sometimes, maybe. Lots of times, not so much. But when we're together, the Spirit is among us in a way that never happens on our own. In the Hebrew Bible, Book of Kings, there's this story of um, how Solomon constructed the temple. And it's one of those things where they give all the details about the dimensions and materials and where to put the windows and the number of side chambers in the nave. And, 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 but there's this one little verse tucked in there that says, The house was built with stone, finished at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the temple while it was being built. And there's this old kind of rabbinic belief that The stones just came out of the quarry in just the right dimensions um, that they needed for the temple. So when they hauled them into place, they didn't have to go to work on them. They just fit in where they needed to go. So you didn't even hear the sound of tools at the job site, just a kind of reverence. And because every rock came out of the ground in the right shape or in its shape, they found a place to fit it in together in the temple. The story always makes me think of Ed Corbin's life and why... His life was a miracle, even though he never stopped being an alcoholic. He never was healed from that disease. And yet somehow when he was drawn into our common life, man, it was, 
it was a thing of beauty. And that guy walking around the parking lot pushing his empty wheelchair, it was, God made me so happy. And I think it honored God. It kind of made us a church in a sense. And Paul said, church is supposed to be like that. That's what it is. In fact, he called the church a new temple. He said, each of us are, are the stones. God cut each of us from the quarry with our quirks and idiosyncrasies and our, our gifts and our damage. And we don't have to jump through hoops or pass a test in order to experience the presence of God. We just come as we are in all our crazy shapes and sizes. And God fits us into this temple. And without the church, we're kind of, you know, uncut stones. We're you know, I don't know, good for something, maybe a doorstop or a paperweight or whatever. But as we come together, we start to find our place and we start to see the miracle of our own lives and of each other. And this becomes um, the way that we come to bear the image of God to the world around us. And actually the way we mediate the presence of God like the temple was supposed to do. When Jesus showed up in the world, the temple was not functioning the way it was intended. Like religiously, it was just a system of sacrifices and purity codes that kept people out more than it welcomed them in. And it was a problem he went to great pains to address. Politically, the temple had become a symbol of like Jewish ethnic nationalism. Right? And it's understandable, by the way, because they were, I mean, the, the Hebrew people were under you know, constant threat from the empires of the world. But even their religious life had become kind of fearful and insular and, and preoccupied with national security. And many of them were convinced at the time that all of Israel's troubles were happening because they weren't keeping the law the way they were supposed to. And so they shunned those who didn't keep the law, who weren't like perfect um, around faithfulness and purity and rightness, peace, shalom. And these powerful boundary markers excluded marginal people from worship, from the temple. The injured, the sick, deaf and blind people, people with disabilities or birth defects, they had to sit outside the, the temple and beg for cash. And, and we can get really judgy about that, but they weren't doing this to be mean. They were trying to show God how faithful they were and how seriously they took the, the temple, and they thought if God could see their zeal for the temple, he'd come to their aid. But what happened was, instead of a temple that mediated the presence of God to the, the nations, the temple became a symbol of like exclusion and segregation. And so Jesus just began to go out of his way to stand with the outsiders to that whole system. Women, children, unclean, lepers, lame, sick, Samaritans, Gentiles. He pulled them in close. And even the ones who were in terrible shape, I mean, like a woman caught in adultery, uh, um, somebody possessed by evil spirits, a tax collector, a prostitute, Jesus pulled them in close. And in, in his way of being, he leveled this devastating critique against the temple. And, and basically he was saying, look, if you set the bar at perfection, nobody gets over that bar. And this is not what God intended. 
They were drawing these lines between like sinful and holy or sacred and profane or Jew or Gentile or however they had a million lines. And Jesus says, you're drawing the line in the wrong place. The line gets drawn right down the center of every human life. And he's like, keep trying to get the, the speck out of your neighbor's eye with that plank in your own eye and see how that goes for you. And he said, this has made you function as, as a people, less like a temple and more like whitewashed tombs, he said, that, are, that look good on the outside, but inside they're full of dead man's bones. And of course, it's not just them, right? It's us. This is all of us. The line goes down the center of us. It's the, what's the wallflower song? Same, same black line is drawn on you, is drawn on me. Like this line goes down the middle of us and all creation. And, and so it's tempting when we're afraid, especially when we're insecure or when we've been wronged. That's the big one. When somebody does us wrong, we start drawing lines between ourselves and those who are really to blame, who are really the problem, right? We accuse them. We condemn them and count them out. And Jesus is just like, look, you can't um, condemn or indict another person for their brokenness without indicting yourself, the great Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he says it this way. I love this paragraph. He says, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And this line shifts, he says, inside us. It oscillates with the years. You know, if, the, if the line between good and evil, if it disqualifies us, we're all in, in trouble. Because that, that line runs right down the center of the human heart, and it's constantly changing and moving and shifting and oscillating. And the whole story of God, the whole point of the temple from the beginning and now of the incarnation of Christ and his ministry all the way through his ascension was to announce that God has come for us. God was always with us, but now in a new way, God is, is present to us through this spirit that comes on Pentecost and is trying to, to invade all of life with this healing presence, right? But instead of a temple, the people of God has sort of built this prison. And in locking other people out, they also, they like locked themselves in but God was out and loose, right? The, the temple curtain torn. He's, God's on the loose in the world. Jesus actually talked about stones a lot and the temple a lot and the two together. He, he quoted that psalm that says, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone of this new thing that God is doing. He, he talked about the temple. He's like, you guys are so nuts about this. I'm telling you, it's going to get destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another, which is actually what happened a few decades later. He told him that the, the temple had become a stumbling stone. That when, when people came looking for God, they kept tripping over the temple. And, and, and Peter, remember with, when Peter made the confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he says, on this rock, that that declaration of faith that I'll build my church. I'll build a whole new deal. And then on the day of Pentecost, Peter, whose name was actually not Peter, his name was Simon, but Jesus had given the nickname Peter, which means rock, right? Stone. He's always talking about stones. He renames this guy rock 
This guy becomes filled with the Holy Spirit and began to just powerfully proclaim the gospel of grace and mercy. And suddenly, people from all different nations, which was the whole point from the beginning, all different nations from the margins of culture, they started to finally hear the call of God's love in a language they could understand. People um, get overly focused on the speaking in tongues thing here which it can be a distraction. The real miracle was that before Pentecost, there were dead stones locking you know, marginal people out. And after Pentecost, there were living stones pulling marginal people in. That's the, the miracle that finally the people who needed God the most could hear the good news in a language they could understand. I mean, if you want to speak in tongues, it's not like most people think it is. If you want to speak in tongues, love your neighbor. That's the universal language that everyone understands. And, and then suddenly these ethnic nationalistic barriers, they just started breaking down. They just didn't, it's not that they went away, they just were negated. They didn't matter. What began on that day is sometimes called the age of the spirit. This time in which there's just no more barriers for the people of God. They just kind of fall away. And God is, is present. Jesus said, whenever two or three are gathered in the name of Christ, gathered around this new way of being, God is present to them. And on Pentecost, it happened to these people in the upper room, I don't know, maybe 70 more, the disciples and the other followers. It happened to them first, and then it just starts to spill out into Jerusalem. Right? And years later, um, Peter the church had grown like crazy, and he was one of the main leaders. Peter tried to explain to the people what had happened, and, and he wrote this. He says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be, and these are words that used to be used about Israel, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Translation, God was never really that crazy about the temple from the beginning. The only sacrifice God really wanted was spiritual in nature. He wants us. He wants our lives, all of us. He wanted his people to, to catch fire with the reality of God's presence and God's love and grace and mercy. And when they did, they finally became the people of God. And so in a sense, Pentecost is the beginning of the age of the spirit, but it's also the age of the church. And this is our tradition. This is the people that we're part of as Christians, the church that was born on that first Pentecost. A few years ago, I stumbled onto, I think, a powerful metaphor for the church, and it came by way of a piece of art, a work of art, down at the Nelson Atkins Museum by a guy named Andy Goldsworthy. Some of you will remember this. Um, it was called the Walking Wall Exhibit. Goldsworthy is a really interesting guy. We had used him before. In fact, we had done a couple Sundays on him. Underneath this carpet are a bunch of 
things we chalk drew on here. You remember that? The day we came in this room before we were even legally in the building, we were totally breaking fire code that morning and had church in here and drew under the ground all these Andy Goldsworthy homages because we were talking about him that day. But he, he works with rocks and trees and flowers and, and leaves out in nature, and they, they film it and, and take pictures, and then when it's completed, most of it just like floats away down the river or succumbs to the elements. And he's trying to, to draw our attention to the beauty of the moment and the way that everything is always changing. And um, the walking wall is a variation on that theme. They built this wall about 100 yards long using old methods, no cement, just fitting the rocks together by hand the way, the way they used to do when they were clearing the land around here. Smaller rocks and pebbles just go in between to, to make it stronger. And when they finished, they began to walk the wall forward. You can see, I think, in, in the next, here, if you go forward a couple, there's a, uh, there are wheelbarrows. Are we stuck? Keep popping forward. That's the wall. It's meant to mimic a river. See how it looks like a river from above? That's kind of what it's meant. And then go one, one forward, and you can see there they are. They're the guys using the wheelbarrows there to, to walk this wall forward, deconstructing um, stones from the tail of the wall, and then reconstructing them on the front end on that new terrain, just kind of building it forward onto new ground, like the wall was walking. You could go about 12 yards a day, kind of went across the road and around this, or from that empty field, then up around the end of the building. That's what you're looking at right there. And into the museum and back outside where it lives kind of permanently now. It's half inside and outside the building there. And the church, I'm suggesting, is a bit like this, the walking wall. It's not just a plain wall that once it's built, it just sits there. It's a walking wall. It's moving. It's alive. These stones are living stones, right? Always headed onto this new terrain. And our job is to somehow try to keep this walking wall moving forward. But to do this, we have to go deconstruct the, its beginning, its origins, and carry that stuff forward faithfully as God leads us into the future. Every rock has to get carried forward. Not a, a pebble of our tradition can be left behind. We may not use it. There's some that we are not going to use, but we will carry it with us. You never know when you might need it later. But what the wall looks like then at any given time will depend not just on the stones, but also on the terrain or, or the culture of our day. You know, there, there are some things in life that have to change in order to stay the same. And the church is one of those things. And this can actually be quite disorienting. The changes, you know, that are required just to stay faithful. And our task is to do whatever it takes to keep that walking wall moving forward. And kind of what keeps this from going crazy, of course, is, is the scripture and the tradition, but also this spirit that was unleashed that is not your possession, it, but it lives in the spaces between us and in our hearts, but in these spaces between us as we try to work this out together. That's why, like, our, for instance, our elders at Redemption Church don't vote. We don't take votes. We work on consensus. And, and when, we're, when everybody is on board, we go. And until everybody's on board, we wait, because we're waiting on the Spirit to draw us into one place. 
Right? It, this could be, I mean, Bill Hybels has slapped my face for that thing, right? That's just not how you lead unless you're waiting on the Spirit. Goldsworthy is interesting. He's, he's actually kind of cool. I think he's Scottish killer accent. He would just hang around all day while his guys were doing all the work. He, he hardly did any work. He would just talk to people. So I went down there one day and got in a conversation, talked to him about his work and told him how it was shaping our church. And he talked a lot about the disorientation he saw as a result of this wall. You know, normally walls go on the perimeters of areas and spaces, but this goes like right down the middle and it's long. So if you want to navigate that space, it's a real inconvenience. And people have strong reactions to that sort of thing. For a, a while, it blocked the road, like blocked traffic on this road for several weeks. Go to the next one. I think you can see it. And, and Goldsworthy said, that's it going right across the road. Like that was a working road right there. And Goldsworthy said, that's when you divide the world into those who believe in art and poetry and those who don't. <laughs> right? He's telling me a story about this, like this old, older woman, like he's, she's pretty old. She came up honking and giving him the finger because she was having to like turn around and go back, back the other way. But others, he said, would just come, they would come ask, can we come play in the street? Like there are rules, right? You don't play in the street. And they would ask and they'd come out there and there was a sense of playfulness that went with that. For a while, the, um, the uh, wall split this stairway in two. And you, if you chose the wrong side of this stairway, when you're trying to go from building to building, um, you would have to backtrack the whole length of the wall or else go clear around the building, which I had to do one time because I got on the wrong side of it. And, and like this, the reaction to this is strong. Like Some people would be angry and annoyed. Some people amused or just bewildered. And I think the age of the spirit, the age of the church, it's like this. It is like this. You know, with the law, you could just be sure. It's black and white, in and out, right and wrong. The age of the Spirit is not like that. It's disorienting. We are trying to proclaim the gospel in their own language, in our own language, the language of the culture. And so this is demanding, and this is um, disorienting. But it's, it's also like, I don't know, it's beautiful. It's enchanting at the same time. The church, in the power of the Spirit, it, it will mess with us like this. It will disorient, disorient us. The, the kingdom of God is not convenient, but love never is, right? Love isn't convenient. And some people don't want to be a part of a church like that. A lot of people would rather take the rocks and build them into a fortress Right to keep the undesirables out, or build it into kind of an ivory tower where the enlightened can just analyze the meaning of the wall. Some people want to cement the, the rock wall in place, just freeze it in one time, one configuration, so we can keep it from changing. Some want to take the rocks and use them as projectiles, weapons, in our culture wars. Some want to dismantle the wall, just tear it down, just be done with religion altogether. Some want to individualize the rocks. Does everybody pick your favorite one and take it home, go our separate ways? But all of those distort the nature, right? The purpose of the wall. 
um, destroying the one thing that makes the wall a walking wall, which is that it's walking, it's moving, it's dynamic, it's changing and growing forward onto new ground. And our world is constantly changing. You can't stop that. But the church's role is to mediate the presence of God to an ever-changing world. That's our job. Not, strictly speaking, to change the world. That's, that's the spirit part. That's the God part. That's the redemption that God provides. Our part is to mediate the presence of God. To keep the walking wall moving forward onto new ground always. And we, as we do this, carrying every stone forward, which means part of our task is exploring our own tradition. Learning to, you know, deconstruct those early stones of our faith. Pick them up in our hands. Learn their shape and measure their weight. Carry them forward and and then decide together how they should go, how they should be arranged um, on this new terrain of culture. And as we build the church anew in every successive generation, somehow, just miraculously, um, just like in that first Pentecost, this wall sort of comes to life, takes on life of its own. It moves. It elicits, calls forth a response, right? Some good, some bad. And as we do our work, though, what happens is we, we become aware of the presence of God always with us in a way that's not present when we're not doing this kind of work. I love this metaphor, man. I think this thing is rich. I'm, even this time, I discovered some other meanings of it that I hadn't thought about. This is what the church is like, not frozen in one time, not endlessly chasing like the latest trends either, just patiently walking this wall forward one stone at a time, just enjoying the, the simplicity of the work. At Redemption Church, we have this tradition each year on Pentecost, we invite those who want to join our church to um, take one of these rocks that are piled up over there and um, sign their name on the rock. And then it kind of lives here. It goes with the other ones in, in the sanctuary. Down through the years, we've all done this. Everybody's got a rock over there. And um, they are symbols of the church as the new temple. This, that's why we did the rocks in the first place, is that thing from kings in the temple. And... Um, It just symbolizes all of us as living stones, trying to work together to mediate God's presence and power to the world. And um, each year as a part of that, we reaffirm our commitment to membership in this body, in this congregation. And that's what we're going to do right now. So I'm going to ask if you would all stand. And anybody who is a parent of a preschooler, if one of you could run get your children right now. Um, we would love them to come and be part of this. So um, whatever you got to do to go grab your preschooler and come on back with them, because I want our, our kids, we want them to be a part of all these kind of liturgical movements that we make. So each year at Redemption Church, we, um, for lack of a better term, join the church again every year. We, we make this commitment one more time, and recommit ourselves to this congregation and to the work of carrying the wall forward. And so in a moment, we're going to repeat the promises that we made the first time we joined the church. Um, they're, they're actually this, um, an adaptation of 
the baptismal re um, requirements, the things we say at our own baptism or um, that parents say in baptism their, their children. The way this is going to go is this. We're going to receive communion together as we always do. But if you're wanting to join the church, there are um, these two um, roll books on either of these tables. And you can come up with yourself or your family, whoever's with you, whoever's joining with you, come and sign your name in the book. Feel free to have your kids sign. If it's just chicken scratch, that's fantastic. Let them make their mark. And then later on and years later, they can come and fix up their signature. Um, if you joined a while ago and just want to see your name in the book or show your kids the name in the book, go for it. If you want to go up and find your rock in the pile and show your kids, do that too. We're going we're gonna to take a little while. This will be a little messy, but that's just fine. Um, and so we're going to go ahead with our communion thing, but then as, as we um, start the music and, and start our communion, Whoever wants to come sign the books, come on up ahead and do that, and then you can sign a rock and put it in place. Does that make sense? Okay, um, excellent. So uh, let's do this first. If you would grab your communion stuff and let's let's um, do our normal communion liturgy. If you need um, the bread and shrink wrapped grape juice, Michelle is in the back with a basket. If you don't have one, she's right there. You can grab one. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his followers, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and blessed it and passed it around to his guys who all drank from the same cup. And he said, this um, cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God. And he said, every time you get together as a church, eat this bread, drink this cup. Take my life into your life. Remember who you are, who you're made of. And um, so this is why we receive communion every week to remind us who we're made of. And um, so I invite you to just hold it in front of you and let's pray our blessing on the elements. Lord, we give you thanks for the bread and the cup. May they be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive them into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit one God, now and forevermore. Amen. All right, now before we receive communion, I'm going to invite you to um, recite our, or not recite, to respond to our, our membership liturgy. Um, so I'll just ask you some questions, and um, your response is, it will be, we do. So, redemption. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty and trust only in the blood of Christ? and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit for your salvation, if so, say we do. And do you commit yourselves to Redemption Church to love and serve her through your prayers, presence, gifts, service, and faithful devotion, if so, say we do.
Will you continue in the teachings of the scriptures in fellowship with one another, with the breaking of bread together, and in prayer for one another? If so, say, we will. Do you seek the perseverance in faith, the resistance of evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repentance, and a turning again to the Lord? If so, say, we do. Will you proclaim by the words that you say and by the way that you live the good news of God in Christ? If so, say, we will. And finally, do you commit yourselves to seek first the kingdom of God and to serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? If so, say, we do. Well, then with hearts overflowing with joy, we recognize you as a member of the church universal and this body Redemption Church, we receive you into the fellowship of this communion. May the Lord bless and preserve and keep the commitments you have made on this day to guide you in faithful service to this church and in faithful service to the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to receive communion now and just invite you to come forward, sign the roll books, sign the rocks, um, bring your family, do whatever you feel led to do.